Growing up, I wouldn't call myself a bad child or horrible, just hyper and didn't really listen well. I mean, that, that's probably what I would consider myself. And I'm still that way in a sense sometimes, uh, less hyper, but still don't listen well, right? Um, now, with that being said, I did, this is a shocker, I did get in trouble from time to time, right? Uh, and my punishments were different depending on the, 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 you know, the crime, of course. For instance, if I got a paddling at school, I would get a paddling at home. Uh, and my dad, for those of y'all don't know my dad, he is a professional home builder and so works really well with his hands. And so uh, the, the paddles that he made were much stronger than the ones that were made in school. Those were so thin, by the way. Uh, the kids today have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, if I didn't do my chores like I was told to do, uh, certain activities would be taken away, such as you no know, TV privileges or Game Boy time, right? And I'm not the color Game Boy. I was black and white Game Boy, so I was the OG, if any of y'all know what I'm talking about on that. Um, but when I disobeyed my parents or disrespected them in some way, that was what I feared the most, right? You see, I deserved every punishment that I got uh, and I should have gotten more, but when I mocked or disobeyed my parents, and by the way, my parents are right here in front of me, they'll, they'll admit to all of this. Um, that was, and of course there were different severities of punishment, but that was the punishment that I hated the most. It was most likely a whooping. Now there's a difference between a whooping and a spanking, and those of y'all that have had a whooping before know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, I know this sounds crazy, but the punishment that I hated the most, or I say hated, I disliked the most, was <laughs> writing sentences. It was, the, these were no ordinary sentences. Let me, let me tell you, it was scripture like Proverbs thirty seventeen. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. <laughs> now, if you write that sentence over a thousand times, you cannot go outside and not look up for birds. I'm gonna let you know right now. Alan Easterwood knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? But, that was the punishment that I disliked the most because my parents, they, see, they knew the Bible and, and they knew every scripture that would make me think twice about disobeying them. And of course, scripturally, disobeying God. Listen, don't get me wrong. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for how my parents raised me. I'm the man I am today because of it. I believe that they raised me exactly how the scriptures tells us to raise our children. They weren't perfect, sorry mom and dad, nobody is. But I believe I was raised in a godly home and today I pray that we get a picture of what a godly home is supposed to look and do in today's passage in Deuteronomy 6, four through nine. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter six verses and we're gonna read verses four and nine, four, sorry, four through nine together. And if you would, please stand in the reading of God's word. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. May God bless the reading and preaching of God's word. You may be seated this morning. So Moses is nearing the end of his life and he's wanting to reaffirm for the nation of Israel uh, the commands, laws, and words that God has given to his nation. Verse four starts out with something that is called the Shema. Now granted, I, I've had to uh, explain to my wife what the Shema is and I want to explain to our church now what the Shema is. The Shema is the centerpiece of the daily morning and evening prayer services and it's considered by some the most essential prayer in all Judaism. It's an affirmation of God's singularity and kingship. Verse four and five record uh, what has become the key confession of, of the Jewish prayer. The Shema, which comes from the, word, the Hebrew word here, is important to the nation of Israel. The people are addressed in Deuteronomy with uh, this word six times. Hear, O Israel. Christopher Wright says it like this. It's a constant reminder that Israel is a people summoned by God to hear God's word. They were not merely spectators at a divine show, but recipients of the divine relation in words. They were to hear the truth and respond to it. And so Moses is telling the Israelites, listen, I know that I've said a lot. I know that I've been speaking and all of this has been uh, being, being said but I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention. Come back in, refocus, bring it back in. So verse four and five, Moses says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. See, verse five sounds familiar, doesn't it? We, for those of y'all that have been in our church for uh, any amount of years, uh, at least the past five years, you have been going through Matthew with us. And so we are done with Matthew. That was, that seemed, how long, that, that was, that was a long time. It was six years we're going through Matthew, which is awesome. So, but if y'all have gone through Matthew with us, you would have, uh, have seen Matthew 22, uh, when asked by a lawyer, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a command to love God completely. And you should because of who God is and what he has done. That should motivate us to engage with what God is commanded here and also later when Jesus commanded it in Matthew. It brings us to our first point, loving God with all that we are and all that we have is the ultimate goal. Loving God with all that we are and all that we have is the ultimate goal. It's the, it was the ultimate goal for the nation of Israel. And it's the ultimate goal for those who've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. How do we do that? How do, how do, how do we do that, right? Before we go any further through this passage, we have to stop right here and focus on what God and what Moses is telling us right here before we can ever continue on. I want to break down this passage. I want to go over what the Israelite meant by heart, soul, and might first. When it comes to, um, when it comes to the heart, I tend, for those of y'all that don't know me, I tend to be an emotional person. Nobody's, nobody's acting shocked. 
but I tend to be an emotional person, right? And, uh, and though today we see the heart as the source of our emotions, in biblical times, heart referred to what we today would call the mind or thoughts. So when today, so when we today are told to follow our hearts, what we're really being told is to follow our thoughts. And I always want to make this reference anytime I speak on the heart. I, I, the students know exactly where I'm going and they're just already eye rolling right now. But when it comes to, when we, I want to make this reference to the heart. As Christians, we don't follow our hearts. As Christians, we don't follow our hearts because our hearts or our thoughts are wicked. I posted something earlier this week about that. Someone says in a meme uh, to just follow, looks over the guy's, uh, sorry, looks, guy says in a meme, just follow your heart. Then the guy looks over and says, thanks, Satan. I mean, that's exactly what, that's exactly what they're doing at that point, right? Our hearts and our thoughts are wicked apart from God. So don't listen to them, right? Don't listen to our thoughts. Listen to God and God's word. Sorry, getting back to the passage here. Rant over. The soul referred to the inner person, you as you know yourself to be and with all your strength translated literally means with your very muchness. You see, there are no limits on loving God. You can never say that you have loved him enough. But can you command such love? Can you command such love? To answer that question, we must look at what loving God means in the Bible. First, it is not a love that we create out of nothing. Its source is the love with which God has loved us. First John says, we love because he first loved us. He acts to save us because he loves us and also fills us with his love. A change takes place within us that is brought out by the Holy Spirit. He gives us new life and our eyes are open to see the beauty of God. John Piper puts it like this. You don't merely, uh, merely decide to love him. Something changes inside of you and as a result, he becomes compellingly attractive. His glory, his beauty compels your admira admiration and delight. He becomes your supreme treasure. It is impossible to love God this morning without loving with our entire being. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and he ends it with these words, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God is Lord of the universe. He made everything there is for his glory. So when God asks us to love him with our whole being, he has our own welfare in mind, right? We love him because he first loved us, not the other way around. Once we have experienced God's love, and know what a wonderful thing it is. A command to totally love would not be viewed as an obligation. 
Once we have experienced God's love, let me say that again. Once we have experienced God's love and know what a wonderful thing it is, a command to totally love would not be viewed as an obligation. It would be viewed as an invitation to freedom, joy, and finding who God would intend us to be. That's what loving God with all of our heart, soul, and might is talking about. And once we understand that, we are given a command to, to keep these on our hearts. Verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. But why does God have to command this, right? If we've experienced God's love and we know God's love, why does God have to command such a thing? Because even right now, as I'm preaching, this morning, there are all sorts of distractions going on. Right now, in your head, you're already thinking about what's gonna happen this afternoon, right? We're all, we, we, we are people of distraction. There are all sorts of distractions going on. God knows that, that the busyness of life gets in the way and we need a nudge in the right direction all the time, constantly, through commands. Because... <laughs> We have a nature tainted by sin. I don't know if you know that or not. We have a nature tainted by sin. We as a society have been told time and time like the, what I've mentioned earlier to follow our hearts and not God's word. We are tempted to keep small areas of our lives from God. And even, even though they are very small, listen, church this morning, even though these things of uh, what you have going on right now in your mind seem very small, they will ultimately destroy you. They will ultimately ruin your life. So in some way, some ways the call to love God with all, with our whole being is a call to total dedication. But for us, total dedication is much more than obedience to some rules. It has to do with, with a relationship with God that overflows with love. To be totally dedicated to God, to keep these commands on our hearts and to be madly in love with him and his word. He says, and these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. God's word has to be, God's word is to be at the core of who we are. God's word is to be at the core of who we are. And for something to be on your heart is to be at the core of who we are. But see, it doesn't stop there. Moses says to the Israelite that, that they are not only to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and might, but they are to teach them, especially to their children. Verse seven says, and you shall teach them diligently, diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. First, this loving devotion to the one true Lord must be shared in the home. These God-given truths must not only be taught by Moses, but also by every parent in Israel so that children and grandchildren will learn and keep all his decrees and commands. Moses says that these commands are not just snippets of wisdom. They are not just motivations that you, that you get from a daily tear-off calendar. 
They're not things that you find in a fortune cookie. No, he says that these things that you are to engage with each and every day of our lives. Parents were to impress them. They were to impress this word on their children's mind and to, to make it the subject of natural everyday conversation within family life. You see, there's a danger in Christian homes today. There is a danger in Christians' homes today that we as parents are so fervently oblivious to, and that is the spiritual welfare of our children. We want them to succeed in life with academics, with sports, clubs, college prep classes, but we forget to give them something that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. And that is the foundation in God's word. Church this morning, discipleship starts with the family. Church, let me say that again. Discipleship starts with the family. When it comes to building a better, when it comes to building better families, it doesn't start with what we do uh, two, one to two days a week here in the church, but rather what you do in your homes every day of the week. Teaching who God is and what he desires. He didn't give this task primarily to the church, but to the family. When, when you look at the hours of where your kids spend most of their time, is it the church or is it your house? Now, if you ask my kids, it would be the church. Your children are under this roof one to three hours a week. While at your home, while at your home they are there one to three hours a day. Parents have over 3,000 hours a year to teach their children about Christ. The church has about 40 hours a year. So, so speaking with your children about the commands and the word of God and about who Jesus is, is largely a role not for the church. It's largely the family. Who is in a greater position to teach them who Christ is than you? Who is in a greater position to teach them who Christ is than you? See, I can remember in my home growing up, uh, there was always time for sitting down in the living room and, and, and having a Bible study uh, and everyone, everyone present, everyone had to be present, of course, um, followed with prayer for the upcoming week. Uh, we didn't do this every week. All honesty, we didn't do this every week due to different things going on, but I'll never forget going around the room and praying for one another. My parents taught me to pray. And when you think about it, that is one of the hardest things as a new believer to do, is to pray. Let's teach our children to pray. I'll never forget those as long as I live. And I, and I know that your children will not either. Maybe it's Maybe it's not a long devotion. Maybe it's not a long devotion with your family. Maybe, maybe it's teaching your kids to pray for a meal. 
or before bedtime. Teaching your kids to love others or or giving their toys away uh, that they never play with, right? Simple, small steps. Teaching your kids to stand up for what's right and biblical in a society that loves and encourages sin and hates God's word. You see, we can give every excuse in the book on how our lives have gotten extremely difficult and time hasn't, hasn't allowed us to focus on God. And I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you, church. And this passage has convicted me as I was studying it, even now as I'm preaching it. But in order to obey God and apply these verses to our home life, every Christian parent should strive for some opportunity to gather as a family, together for however much time you have and read and talk about God's word. And then pray for one another. Let's give our children the best foundation that we can. And that's God's word. Let's give that to them. Church, families, and here. And I'm up here preaching to myself as one of your elders and and I don't do this well. I don't have family devotions like I should. I, I want to do better. I need to do better for the sake of my family. I must do better. John Piper puts it like this. No pastor lives up to what he preaches. If he does, his his preaching is too low. And today I stand before you as a husband and a father that is living, that is not living up to my own preaching, but, but my goal is to strive to be better. Will you join me, church? Will you join me? Strive to be better. Strive to do better. Not only are we to share this love of God and his word with our children, but we are to share it in the community. Not only are we to share this love of God and his word with our children, but we are to share it in the community. Moses says that we were to display, that they were, sorry, that they were to display the truth on their doorposts and gates. So it would make it unmistakably clear to their neighbors that this family is committed to God's unchanging yet relevant word. They tell everyone where the household stands by doing so. You know, there are some questions uh, whether or not um, these were to be taken literally or metaphorically. And, and I believe, uh, scholars have really debated this, but I believe that they were to be used quite literally because this type of thing was, was regularly done in ancient East. Uh, Israel's neighbors used it, of course, as a superstitious uh, just like you would use like a, a, a good luck charm or a talisman today, but, but they used it more of just some kind of superstitious way. But, but, pe- but God's people, the Bible is, uh, what, what Deuteronomy is telling us here, that what the Jewish people would do, the Bible is used to remind a covenant identity and the covenant responsibility to obey God's word. That's what we were supposed, that's what the people of Israel were supposed to do. So the Protestant church still has several symbolic items in its life uh, that have been derived directly from the scriptures like the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are things that we as a church should remember and take part in according to God's word, right? When I'm, when I'm struggling to apply a, a spiritual truth, 
uh, especially scriptural truth, sorry. In my own life, I sometimes have that scripture displayed uh, in my office somewhere close to my desk. I I right now have 1 Peter 5 uh, and are we loving our people above my door? 1 Peter 5 reminds me how, uh, who I am and supposed to be as one of your elders. And as simple as this is should do, that I should be able to do is, are we loving our people? And what that means to me is loving them by meeting them wherever they are in their life. Do I have all the answers? No, no, I do not. No, I do not. But my primary job as one of your elders is to love and shepherd the flock. And so that's, that reminds me daily that that is what I'm supposed to do. And so in the same way, we as Christians, just as the nation of Israel was commanded to do, we are to do the same thing, to bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Have scripture all over your house, right? Do people know that you love God? If they come into your house, do they know that you love God? Ladies, this is easy for you, right? Go to Hobby Lobby, buy all the scriptures, fancy scriptures, and maybe a few less bless this mess. I don't know, I'm just saying, right? (laughs) Thinking about all the bless this mess that people got for Christmas for Dirty Santa. But seriously, we are to remember the things that God has done for us and talk about them. Always, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do people around you know that you love God? Do the people around you know that you love God? Now, I know uh, that you all have been wondering, hopefully you have, I don't know if you even saw me do it. What in the world is up with these marbles um, up here on the stage? (laughs) No, I didn't lose them, I found them. Um, But a lot of y'all in this entire time have kind of been calculating how many marbles are in this jar. Maybe you haven't been paying attention. Maybe you've been focused on something else, but you've most likely have been calculating in your head some, some mathematical uh, math teachers in here. Like I know exactly the number of, but you don't know the dimensions and all kinds of other stuff. So, but if you think that you got this number correct, if you think that you know how many marbles are in this jar, would you just lean over to uh, the person next to you and just, just whisper it to him real quick. I'll give you a second. So I want you, the people that haven't been looking at the jar, now looking at the jar like, okay, quick, quick math question. Sorry. So the answer is 936. You, you win absolutely nothing. And uh, you should have saved that perfect guess for a time when you could have. But this number, 936, has a meaning when it comes to raising up the next generation. Uh, 
I can't take credit for this illustration. This illustration has been done time and time again by my almost every youth pastor, children's pastor there is. And so if you've uh, seen this illustration before, just bear with me, walk through it with me, all right? So, but I could not think of a better way to illustrate what, what Deuteronomy is telling us here to do and how diligent we should teach our children. And so I wanna break this down for you this morning of why 936 is so special and significant, right? It's approximately 936 weeks from birth until high school graduation. So letting one of these marbles represent a single week, there are approximately 936 marbles from the day your child is born until your child graduates and moves on to what's next. From the moment your little child enters the world, the countdown started. I have a new uh, baby and uh, as I'm even thinking about this, I'm already counting down. I have three jars now of marbles that I've got to keep up with. Uh, <laughs> but with each passing week, a marble comes out. Now, I know that there are several age ranges in here uh, this morning, so I want to kind of break this, this down in different age ranges for you, all right? So once kindergarten starts, we get a, a pretty specific uh, in our timing. It's 624 weeks until they move on. If your child is in sixth grade, we are now down to 342 marbles. 342 hormonally charged marbles. At this point, we are already lost nearly two thirds of our marbles. If your student is in high school as a freshman, you are now down to 186 marbles. And then just for the, the parents of seniors out there, Consider the fact that you are now down to your last 30 marbles until they graduate. I know what you're thinking, right? Parents, grandparents, thanks for depressing and stressing me out. I wouldn't be doing my job. I'm just kidding. No. Um, please know that neither one of those emotions are my intent this morning. It's not. Um, I also know that, that some of you may be resisting the idea of a countdown, right? You may be thinking, don't make me think of the time that I have left, make me think of the, the time I have now and focus on that. The truth is we shouldn't be counting down with dread. Instead, we should be focused on the time we have left so that it will motivate us to make every second count. This is what Moses is trying to convey in this text. Time is limited with your children. So diligently teach them things of God and talk about them day and night. For grandparents, parents in here, you likely have been paying attention up to this point. But what about the empty nesters? The not yet parents, singles, and those who are actually part of the age group that I'm speaking about right now. Please know that this morning is not a waste of your time. Please know that this morning does not apply to you because it does. This is where you come in. When we do a baby dedication here, it's not just to bring the parents up here on stage and the children and hand them a book and say good luck, right? It's a time for, as a church, that we see a family who is not perfect, but is bringing their family before the church in order that we as a church family would commit with them 
to help take care, to protect, to disciple their child along with them every step of the way. That's why we stretch out our, our, our hands. That's why we stretch out our hands towards them. We are letting them know that, that, that we have their back and that we are gonna do whatever we can do to help disciple them and protect them and pray for them. Every person in here is essential to the discipleship of the family. Every person in this room, in this church is essential to the discipleship of the family. There are things that have been said to us as parents uh, from, from people in this church that have helped my wife and I greatly, especially when it comes to surviving a newborn that is crying and a toddler who is teething, right? That is, I mean, like that is, my goodness, that has helped me, right? That's helped my wife more than me. But you are essential. We need that in our lives. I need that in my life. We are called as a church to lift one another up and to disciple the next generation of the church. I know that a lot of y'all in here serve in some area, some form, some fashion, security team, connection team, nursery, preschool area, and you're tired. You served last week and you take one, someone else's spot the following week because you, they couldn't do it, right? And it's because of people like you who love the church and the next generation that I get to sit down with my children at the table and ask what they've learned each Sunday. And I get to hear the Bible come alive in my little boy's lips because of your heart to disciple. That's where you come in, church. This, is, this message is not just about parents in here, it's about the church as well. We are called to disciple. We are called to, to love, protect the children. Listen, because you are not a parent doesn't mean this morning didn't apply to you. We as a church have a responsibility to love, protect, and disciple the church in every aspect of our lives. Whether it's present in the home or not, you are important to the spiritual development of the next generation. This brings me to those in this room from birth to college. First, I love you guys so much. And I'm not fearful for your future. I'm hopeful. I love working with you. I love coming alongside you. And discipling you. But I want, I want to ask something of you. Be willing to be invested in. Be willing to be invested in. Those students who seek out and surround themselves with those who care about their journey with Jesus are the ones who excel. They excel in their faith, especially during this next phase. You can seek a lot of things. You can seek popularity, academics, athletic success, selfish or sinful desires. What if you sought to surround yourself with people who are going to help guide you through this crazy thing called life, right? Who are gonna help you learn 
to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Be willing to be invested in. And finally, for the parents in here, you've done what God has commanded you to do. You've, you've done what Proverbs 22.6 has commanded you to do by training up your child in the way that it should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. And now you're older and your children are not in church. Can I say something to you this morning? We are praying for you and we love you so much. pray that you don't give up on them. The connection cards that I get to, that, that turned in every, every week, I get to pray for just such a, a request. That their children, they're pleading on that card, they're pleading for their children's life. Know that you're not alone. Know that you are not alone in this and we love you and we are praying for you and, and can I ask you to do something? Can you just keep allowing us to pray with you, to come alongside you, to encourage you, to strengthen you wherever you are, wherever you're at right now? Can I do that? Can, can us as a church, can we, can we do that? Please allow us to come alongside you and strengthen you. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.